our regulars are not here. I know we have uh, quite a few that I'm aware of personally who are traveling today, but we're glad that you're here. Robert already mentioned this in his prayer, but it's especially good to see J.P. Williams here today after he's been missing for so long after his uh, broken hip and that surgery. So we're glad he's here. We're glad you're here, whether you're a member or a visitor, and I hope the time we spend here together will be uh, uplifting for all of us. At Christmas, much of the world celebrates the birth of Jesus. And at Easter, much of the world recognizes the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we don't celebrate these as religious holidays per se, and yet our thoughts can't help but be turned to the birth of Christ, to the resurrection of Christ, respectively, at those times of the year. And often our sermons revolve around those topics. But did you know that today is an important day, an important anniversary too? Today is Pentecost, and I bet that most of us were not even aware of that. But it's an important day, immensely important, because Pentecost is the birthday of the church, the people of God that he's given us this great privilege of being a part of. We read about the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, and the first chapter of Acts tells us that Jesus met with his apostles there on the Mount of Olives, and he charged them to be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and then ultimately going throughout all of the world. And then he told them to go to Jerusalem and to wait until they received the Holy Spirit that had been promised to them, and then he ascended up out of their sight. So they go back to Jerusalem. They wait, and they pray. And we pick up at the beginning of chapter 2, and we see that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Then we have all the various nations who were represented there mentioned. We skip to verse 12, and all of these different people were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Verse 14, Peter answered them, Standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and he addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And beginning with these words, quoting from Joel's prophecy, he preached to them about Jesus. He told them the story, the facts of his life, his death, his resurrection. And he tells them in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Listen then, too, to the climax of his sermon and the response that they make. Verse 36, 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, even every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the beginning of the church, and it is a great and a glorious day. But I want to call your attention in particular to the summary statement that follows these events here on Pentecost. Because the early church, as recorded here in the book of Acts, was a dynamic and vibrant and growing entity that ultimately turned the world upside down. And all this in spite of facing tremendous opposition, first here in Jerusalem from the Jewish religious establishment, and then as it spread throughout the wider world from the Roman Empire. So how did they do it? What made it possible? What was the secret to their success? What was it about these first century Christians that gave them the strength, the courage, the enthusiasm, the optimism to be able to face these incredible odds and outlast such strong opposition? I think that much of that secret can be found in these verses, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This is a description of the characteristics that defined the life of the early church here in Jerusalem. And I am convinced that if we possess these same characteristics in this church singularly and in our churches collectively across this world, that God can again, produce great results. So I want us to walk through these this morning, see what these characteristics are, see how we might cultivate them so that God can use us to bring about his glory and honor. First of all here in verse 42, we see that the Jerusalem church was steeped in God's word. They emphasized learning his word and his will. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or doctrine. For any church to be faithful, it has to be a studying church. And I think that too many times we don't engage in this the way that we ought. God hasn't called us to go out and reach people with the gospel of Christ, to make them Christians, and then just to walk away from them. All right, 
That was good and got you in the water. Now we're done. We're on to the next one. That's not what Peter did here. They didn't just uh, ask them to repent and to be baptized. They didn't just respond and then they left off studying here. No, God has called us to invite people to accept Jesus as Lord and then to continue to teach them, to make them disciples. That's what Jesus said in the Great Commission, isn't it? Matthew's account of it, Matthew chapter 28, go you therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And yet in too many cases, I think we've neglected what's one of our most basic responsibilities as a church. We get someone in the water and then we move on to the next one. We act like that's the sum total of our job And we wonder then why people fall away. Or we wonder then why they're confused, why they're not the finished product we think that they ought to be. We fail to challenge them to truly be disciples, to truly follow Jesus, to learn what God's will is for their lives, to study his word. Making disciples is a process. It's a journey. Baptism is the beginning of that, not the end. My great-grandfather used to say that becoming a Christian is simple. I can tell you how to become a Christian in 30 seconds. But it would take me the rest of my life to try to tell you how to live the Christian life. Because it is something that is a lifelong process. And that means we need to know God's will. So a church that follows God's pattern, God's plan for building a great church, we will be steeped in learning his word. That means for me, this is my responsibility, hopefully I make the study of the word meaningful. Hopefully I make it engaging. Hopefully all of us can learn something when we come together here and we're inspired to go on and study a little bit more ourselves, that I impart it with this sense of urgency. But this isn't just my responsibility. We all have this responsibility, and if you're relying on sermons or Bible classes to be the sum total of your Bible study, well then, you're not living up to this continuing to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching the way that these Jerusalem Christians were. We have this need for personal, daily Bible study. Now sometimes people will say, well, you know, I've I've tried to do that. I've tried to study the Bible, and it's hard. It's hard to understand. Yeah, it can be. It takes work. But there are so many wonderful tools available to us these days, modern translations and commentaries and study guides, and so many of these are available for free on the Internet. It's a wonderful resource. There's no excuse for us to not apply ourselves and avail ourselves of these tools that are out there. Don't miss out on the Word as a guide for your life. Secondly, we see that these early Christians experienced dynamic fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. The word that's translated here as fellowship means a lot more than just getting together and eating and having a good time. You know, we typically apply this to the meals we have together, our potlucks, a fellowship meal. It includes that, sure. But it's much bigger than that. This word refers to a closeness, a sharing, a joint participation, a common bond that unites all of us. 
belonging to each other and collectively all of us belonging to the family of God. God is our Father. It's this closeness that compels us to roll out of bed on a Sunday morning and to come together here rather than just rolling back over and getting a few more hours sleep the way so many people do. We had a lesson about this very topic just a few weeks ago, but, so I won't belabor the point, but this is what the Hebrews writer is getting at in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. We don't assemble here together out of a sense of obligation because we're afraid to forsake the assembly. Rather, we assemble here because we're part of this fellowship, because we need each other. We come here together to try to stir up love and good works in one another. We come together here to confess our faults to one another and to pray for each other. We come together here to encourage one another to live this Christian life. We learn from our experiences. We share our victories and rejoice with those who rejoice. We share our sorrows and we weep with those who weep. To fail to do that is really a sin against our brothers and sisters when we don't have that fellowship that we ought, when we aren't part of that vibrant community. On the other hand, a dynamic fellowship, as we see here, is one of the pillars of a great church. We ought to be living a life together here in community, here inside this building, yes, at the assembly times, but also outside the walls of this building, getting together, living life together with each other. Thirdly, a great church also includes communion. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the break and fellowship to the breaking of bread. That breaking of bread is a term that Luke commonly uses to refer to what we typically call communion or the Lord's Supper. And I find this really interesting because I imagine if you were to take a poll here or if you were to go out and ask church growth experts on what are the ingredients that you need to have a, a growing, vibrant church, probably no one would list the Lord's Supper as one of those ingredients. But it is vitally important for a strong church because in the Lord's Supper, we withdraw from our frenzied day-to-day -day life and we go, in a very real sense, into the presence of God. It's the Lord's table. He sets it for us. He invites us to dine at it. It is his supper. He prepares this for us. We commune with God. And we commune not only with God, we commune with each other, all of us in common, eating this meal together. We're united with our brothers and sisters. We're confessing in our actions that we believe in Jesus Christ. We're declaring to the entire world that he died for us. But not only that, we eat it in anticipation, proclaiming the fact that one day he's coming again. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. So God's master plan for building a great church involves, is centered around, really, the table of the Lord. Next, we see that these first century Christians engaged in consistent and constant prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I mentioned all this opposition that the first century church faced. Well, they knew they didn't have the power, the strength, the resources in themselves to go out into a hostile world and face that alone. 
They needed that strength that comes only from God. And of course, Jesus had set the example for that in the three years that he'd engaged in his ministry. Read through the gospel accounts. Look at Luke's in particular, but you can look at all of them and see that Jesus was a man of prayer. After he dismissed the crowds, he went up on a hillside by himself to pray, Matthew 14, 23. Children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, Matthew 19, 13. He gave his disciples a model prayer, and what prompted him to give that was the fact that they saw him praying and his prayer life was so different Luke chapter 11 that they came to him and they said Lord teach us to pray these men were devout Jews they've been praying all their lives but something was different about the way Jesus prayed and that's reflected in the early church there's a great need in the church today for us to devote ourselves consistently to prayer not just as a time when we go to God with our wish list. Supplication and prayer, petitioning God, that's, a, that's important. But in prayer, we approach God and we praise him for his greatness, for his majesty. It's a time when we confess our sins to God and our weaknesses and we pray for forgiveness and we pray for strength and we pray for healing. It's a time when we give thanks for all of the numerous ways that God has blessed us. It's a time when we seek his will and his guidance in our lives. There is tremendous power in prayer. And I hope we see that and I hope we get a glimpse of it when we come together week by week and we offer our common prayers here as a congregation as we do that, we should be strengthened, we should be encouraged because we're reminded we're not alone. We're all in this together. And of course, we take all of these concerns to God. Prayer is a cornerstone of a strong church. But we move into the next verse, and we see that the Jerusalem church also took action. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Things happen when God's people come together. You think about the events leading up to this in Acts chapter 2, that great crowd that assembled on the day of Pentecost. They didn't come there because of the charismatic personality of Peter or because he was such an eloquent speaker that they were all enthralled, everybody didn't assemble there in order to hear him. It was the power of God. It was the power of the Spirit there working in the lives of the people. And what we need to remember is that even if it doesn't manifest itself in that same way, God's power at work in the world today didn't cease at Pentecost. Nor did it cease when John laid down his pen at the end of Revelation. We close up the book and it's as if God isn't at work in the world anymore. We see it throughout the rest of the book of Acts, for one thing. It's obvious in the life of Stephen. It's obvious in the life of Barnabas. It's obvious in the life of Saul, who was once the persecutor of the church and then became the apostle to the Gentiles. And even if we don't see it in that same way, God is still at work in the world today. We continue the mission, the ministry of Jesus here in the world. We're his hands. We're his feet. And in every corner of this world, you'll find people, Jesus people, who are active in their faith. That's part of God's plan for a growing and dynamic church. 
It's for us to get busy, for us to be active. These Christians also had a heart for giving and for sharing. In verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Some have, over the years, read these verses and compared what they did to communism. I think we should note one very crucial difference, the most important difference. What they did was voluntary, not forced. They chose to do this. In times of opposition, in a time of persecution, their concern for those who were in need resulted in this voluntary outpouring of sharing and caring for those among them who needed help. You see, this wasn't enforced upon them. This was because those early Christians were crazy enough to actually take what Jesus said seriously about taking care of the least among them. You remember things he said? Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Luke 6, 38. And perhaps most famously, that picture of the last judgment in Matthew chapter 25, when we stand before him, he says that he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. God's plan for his church is that we willingly, freely, abundantly share with others the blessings that he's given to us. Finally, the Jerusalem church was characterized by their joy. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Look at that phrase, glad and generous hearts. That word that's translated there is glad. That means an extreme joy. It's a feeling of exultation. This is a jubilant feeling almost beyond description. Because of Jesus, we can possess that deep and genuine joy. It doesn't come from material possessions. It doesn't come from success in our career. It doesn't come even from our family life. It doesn't come from prestige in the community. Any of these things we could list that the world seeks joy in, those only provide fleeting happiness. No, this real genuine joy, this exaltation, that exists only in Jesus Christ. And a joyful heart that comes from Jesus can survive the aches and the pains of daily life. It's not that those things won't happen to you, but we can be sustained because we know that those things are only fleeting. Life can, life can make you bitter. Life can leave you beaten down. But if we're God's people in Jesus, we're sustained by this deep and abiding joy. When we exhibit these characteristics that the earliest church there in Jerusalem demonstrated in Acts, 
people will see that. People will see the power of God demonstrated in this church collectively. They'll see the power of God demonstrated in our lives individually. But do they see that? I think of a story I read one time about a mayor in a small town, probably a town about the size of Liberty. One day he was driving around the square and he noticed a curious thing. There were two city workers there going all the way down the main street. One of them was digging a hole and then he'd move on and dig another one and going right behind him was a second worker who was filling in that hole he just dug. And he watched them go on for a while, digging a hole, filling it in all the way down the street. And finally, he went up and he asked them, what in the world are you guys doing? And one of them said, well, sir, uh, we work on a crew planting trees for the city. It's a three-man crew. One of us digs the hole. One of us plants the tree. One of us fills in the hole. Today, the fellow who plants the tree called in sick. When he said, Proudly, we just came to work and kept on doing our job. (laughs) They missed the point of what they were actually doing. It's easy for us to fall into that habit of just being bodily present here in the assembly. We can become so programmed like those tree planters. We come here and we sit on the pew We volunteer a little bit of our time. We give some of our money into the collection. We might even uh, attend a Bible class or two. Just like those tree planters, we can lose sight of what it is that we're really supposed to be doing here. And the result of that is that after years and years and years of doing church, our relationships are still on edge. We don't know anything more about God's word than we did when we started. Our friends... And our neighbors who were without Jesus when we became Christians are still without Jesus. We've passed the time digging the hole and filling it back in just as if being here inside these four walls was our only objective. May God help us if we've been guilty of just going through the motions like that. Our mission is one of eternal consequence and we must never lose that sense of urgency about it that exists. The sense of urgency that comes with knowing I belong to the kingdom of God. That sense of urgency involved in going out and calling others to become citizens of that kingdom. Everything we do should be motivated by that desire. And if we don't have that sense of urgency, if this isn't the most important thing in our life, We missed the whole point. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to urge you to respond just the way that Peter did his audience on the day of Pentecost. They heard just like you've heard about what Jesus did for you, dying for your sins and that God has raised him up to the right hand. He's exalted him and he's Lord in Christ. What do you need to do? Repent and be baptized. You'll receive forgiveness of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be added to his people. But if you're here today and you already are a Christian, how do we measure up to that church in Jerusalem? We claim as a people that we want to restore the first century church, and I think that's a noble goal. How are we doing in that? 
Do we have the same faith that they did? Do we have the same fellowship that they did? Do we have the same prayer life that they did? Do we have the same commitment to each other in terms of sharing our goods that they did? Do we have that same joy that they did? If you think that you don't measure up and you need to make changes today in a public way in order to be back in that right relationship with God, it's his invitation while we stand and while we sing.